Every Friday, we bring you an ode to the odd. That's Meg. And that's Cal. And we're sorry that we missed everyone last week, and we apologize for not posting about the episode being postponed. We suck. Yeah, we, well, we were sick. Yeah, that sucks. We were really sick. The weather here in New York um, went from um, Halloween to like 50 for three days, mm-hmm. and now um, we currently have a foot of snow. And it was, this week there was, like, a couple of really cold days. Like, bus stop was, like, 11 degrees with a wind chill. Oh, God. Our fall, like, is completely gone. Just done. But we'll probably have a fall and then another winter because it's Rochester. Of course. Gotta love Rochester. But, yeah. So everybody's on the mend. Hopefully fighting off the bug the first time. You won't get sick as much and uh, be able to get back to recording weekly. Sorry, saw a cat, got distracted for a second. (laughs) The good thing is kind of, that kind of came out of this, is that this put us off schedule and now our 13th episode will premiere on Friday, December 13th. It seems like it was meant to be. It really does. It's almost worth being sick. Almost. 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 We're going to do something fun. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure what yet. And this is actually episode nine. Yeah, nine. So we hit double digits next week. And I would say we do something special for that also. But really, each episode kind of has something special about it. And that's why we picked it. So um, we could celebrate every episode. But we'll save them for like the 13s. Okay. And 100 if we get there. Yeah. So things that we usually talk about in the openings, because it feels like we've skipped a whole month of recording. It was just a week, and I feel like I don't remember what to do. Well, when we had the Halloween episode, which was a little unconventional. Yeah, it was short. Right into it because we were excited. Yeah, it was short, and then we got swept up in Halloween itself. Yeah. Hosted the annual party, and it was really fun. It ended in a good game of Cards Against Humanity, which is how us 30-year-olds like to spend yeah. our Friday nights. Not too late, though. Yeah, not too late. Everybody's got to go home to get in bed at a decent time. Mm-hmm. But so, I re- oh. oh, go ahead. I was going to ask if you've been reading or watching anything. Well, I finally finished Orange is the New Black, and I know I mentioned it to you before, but I haven't mentioned it to you yet when we were recording. But I really want to hear from people who have also watched it, because you mm-hmm. haven't. No, I still have to finish it. I got distracted. Do you have an, do you have interest in finishing it? Oh yeah, I'll oh, definitely okay. finish it. I don't That's know very many people who have watched it, and I'm not quite sure why. If it just lost like the oomph, but there don't seem to be as many people yeah, on my social seen, like, media. Anybody posting about it? Yeah, um, I loved most of it. It was actually it 
really surprised me. A lot of it was really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I cried multiple times. Uh, but that last, like, minute of the episode, last episode ever, mm-hmm. I'm still kind of angry. I'm very intrigued. And because I don't know anybody else who watches it or what they thought, I'm not just going to go search on Google. Like, I want to talk right. to actual people I know. Hmm. I'm going to put it on my list to watch it soon. You need to. I think it was, I think it was worth it. It also touches on uh, really heavily on um, immigration and ICE mm-hmm. and uh, detainees. And I think it's something that people need to watch because it's relevant. Definitely. So after I finished that, I moved on to finally getting caught up on the second, oh, I think it's the second season of Mindhunter. Oh, yeah. The show that um, follows the two men as they establish the special division in the FBI Mm -hmm. that profiles serial killers, and they go and they interview these serial killers, which is a brand new term that they kind of coined, um... And they collect data from all of them, and they use it to create profiles of offenders. And um, if you're familiar with um, CSI, oh, any of the yeah. any of the crime shows, you're you're pretty um, sorry, you're pretty familiar with that. But um, it's done really well. It takes place in the past, and I'm I just love it. It's very uh, vintage, chic. Mm-hmm. Like you get to see. Uh, the the carpets and the couches that'll remind you of, like, great-grandma's furniture or grandma's furniture and stuff. It's been on my list for a while. Yeah, I need to watch it. I, I think it's won some awards. I hope so. Oh, staring at the vulture? Yeah, sorry. It's kind of just creeping over us. I looked up and saw a vulture, and I was like, yes. Yeah, that's Scraps. Oh, right, I forgot yeah. yours is named. Yeah. So that's all I've watched. Oh, I'm catching up on iZombie, and I love it, and I'm really sad that it's ending, and I might need to re-binge the whole thing, because, oh, I love Ravi, and... It's another thing I need to catch up on. <laughs> Gotta, well, it's because we do most of our catching up in the winter here mm-hmm. in Rochester, western New York, which is, like, maybe four to eight months out of the year. Yeah, that's true. 50% chance. <laughs> so well, have, you, have you watched anything? I am in the middle of re-watching Coven, American Horror Story. And then after that, I have to watch the second season of The End of the Fucking World. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, the teen apocalypse one? No. No. Not apocalypse. Oh, no? No. What? <clears throat> it's Didn't you just say end of the world? The end of the fucking world. Yeah. Which it's is a, an apocalypse. No, it's a British show. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's a British show. Um, it's based around one kid. He thinks that he's a sociopath and he wants to murder somebody. And a girl develops a crush on him and he decides that he's going to kill her. And she has a big crush on him. And like, it sounds weird, but the way it's done is so good. Yeah, it does sound really weird. And it's apparently only going to be the two seasons because it ended well, Mm -hmm. which I love when they do that, but it makes me want to binge it even more. Yeah, I struggle. I have a habit of falling in love with shows that get canceled. It happens Mm -hmm. to me. I mean, you know this. I text you every time I find (laughs) out. I've everything, I swear. I mean, some of them needed it, but there's a lot of uh, urban fantasy style shows that have premiered that we've loved that have been cut 
because they apparently didn't get enough viewers, but hey, that's what you get when you air something like Constantine, a show about demons, uh, at a 8 p.m. time slot, which is a family time slot. Yeah. So of course it didn't do well. And it was so well done. (laughs) Matt Ryan, forever. Hmm. You have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's okay. Maybe I'll make you watch it sometime. What are we talking about this week? So this week, we're picking up where we left off. So at the end of the last episode, we mentioned that we were going to take a look at roller coasters. Yes. The history of Coney Island and um, the Incubator Doctor. A very weird but good transition. Yeah, it's, uh, it works. That's yeah, how it my, does. It's how my brain works. So we're just going to, I think we've kind of caught up. I think we should just kind of dive right in. Yeah. Are you ready? This is a perfect start because Meg and I are that great example, I believe, where I love roller coasters and you do not, correct? I do not enjoy them. I think I have too much anxiety to enjoy something like that. Um, I have this weird thing where I'm not afraid of heights, I'm afraid of falling Mm kind of thing. So, like... The roller coasters that are meant to make you feel like you're falling, like to make you feel like the straps, you know, are coming off and stuff like that. It freaks me the fuck out. Mm, I get that. Yeah. I did go on the Superman once. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a great story associated (laughs) with that one. I went on it shortly after the ride opened at our our local Six Flags, and I dragged my ex-mother on it, who's afraid of heights. Um, and I convinced her it was totally okay, like, she'd survive, and she did, but she complained and cussed for the rest of the day. I think she got sick a couple times, Shane smoked a pack of cigarettes, and, uh, she was mad at me for a really long time. Probably worth it. It was so worth it. Oh, that's hilarious. So, roller coasters. Yeah, roller coasters. I love them. Did you know that roller coasters... Roller coaster loops are never truly round. I do because I wrote the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well then, well for those who don't know, when a coaster is in the design stage, they start by determining how fast it's going to go. The force that holds you into the cart on the ride, note is oh god, <laughs> centripetal force. Yeah, damn is essential for a proper design. Taking this into account, engineers and designers can work out the specs for the creation of the loops, aka the size and the shape. Yeah, they actually look more like awareness ribbons if you look at, like, a snapshot from below. Yeah. There are a lot of pictures of roller coasters in the research. I believe it. So, in 1884, there was only one legit roller coaster in the United States, but by the Roaring Twenties, where I want to live for a day. Woo! Next year. There were oh yeah, there were over two thousand in the country. The theme park industry took a giant hit with the Great Depression, as you would expect. Yeah. Nobody had money for that, and it caused not just rides but whole parks to close. And it wasn't until the nineteen fifties, when the new golden age of roller coasters began, that they became a regular feature in parks again. Over time, technological advancements, a better understanding of physics. I have none of that. I have none of that either. (laughs) New and better materials and resources gave way to new inventions and devices to make the rise better, faster, and stronger. Well, Superman was at one point. Yeah. And so, some background for those of you, like Meg, who don't like roller coasters. Because I know a lot of people that are scared of roller coasters. Yeah. Like, it's a thing for people. 
Yeah, it's definitely anxiety producing for people. They've yeah. they I read a study when I was writing the article um, that talked about how on average for a typical roller coaster, so not like your biggest badass one out there, but just the normal average one, mm-hmm. doubled people's heart rates on mm-hmm. average. And then what they found was was that um, the older people that were riding them, their heart rate actually got to a level that was almost considered dangerous. Oh shit. Well, as a roller coaster lover, you're I wanna, fine. You're... I want to convince other people to be roller coaster lovers. So here are some facts that'll make you guys feel better. I'm From ready for it. 1987 to 2000, there was an average of four and a half ride-related deaths every year. But from 1990 to 2004, I'm gonna guess there was some kind of safety inspection, new rule or something. All of those years, only 52 people died from associated ride-related deaths. And I want to say, too, um, I have no evidence to back this up, but I want to say, too, that a lot of the accidents that have happened more in, like, recent years were people not following guidelines. So it was people climbing fences and going into restricted areas. So you're not talking about somebody who's riding the roller coaster and it malfunctions yeah. and and it causes them to die right yeah it's not even we're talking about like somebody else yeah yeah third party but so here are some things that you are more likely to die from than a roller coaster bring ready <laughs> no bring <laughs> bring it on number one furniture you are more likely <clears throat> to die from falling furniture you have a 1 in 4,238 chance of dying from falling furniture. Isn't that crazy? Um, actually, no, only because um, having had kids in the last 10 years, there's a lot of new safety stuff out there for um, bolting securing furniture in a kid's room mm-hmm. to the walls because children when they get up out of bed have oh, been known and there's videos that. out there and I've watched them and I've cried don't don't watch them I mean but it's it's also important the you know dresser or something can collapse on them so um well dang I didn't even think about that yeah. my brain went like classic cartoon style of piano like falling from a window on somebody oh I mean I'm sure I there know. are just I mean people could lift a large box of furniture the wrong way and mm. but that's a that's a that's where my mind went first mm. wah, wah, wah. <laughs> uh, hippos 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 kill on average <clears throat> two thousand nine hundred people a year they're very mean. Yeah. Aggressive and territorial. Mm-hmm. They have really powerful jaws, don't they? And we we still go, oh, they're so cute. I know, they are. Especially baby Their little ears. Oh, oh Fiona the hippo. I love Fiona. Yes, exactly. They're, I still love them. I yeah. I love them. Uh, vending machines. You're more likely to die from a vending machine falling on you. An average of 13 people die every year from a vending machine falling on them. What did they order that got stuck? And made them so mad. Exactly. <laughs> that made them that made them feel like they needed to rock that thing. And, well, that's me assuming that's what they <laughs> did, but... Uh, coconuts. An average of 150 people a year 
die from coconuts falling on their heads. Oh, from falling on their heads. Yeah. I almost asked if you were going to say allergies. No. Uh, this one isn't very surprising. Wait, how many people? 150 a year. The timing of, like, a person right. walking underneath a tree that's ready to drop a coconut at the exact second that not only does it hit them, but it kills them? It almost makes you question if there's something going on there. That just, it sounds like a rejected plot of an episode of a true crime show. Or like a beef like horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Killer coconuts. Alright, if we ever get rich from this, we're gonna make this movie. Killer coconuts. Uh, not surprising one. Football. An average of 12 people a year die from playing football. Three times the likelihood of dying on a death-related uh, ride. Not to mention um, traumatic brain injury. Yep. Stupid sport. I mean, what? Ah. <clears throat> what were we talking about? Um, 600 Americans die from falling out of bed every year. That's really sad. I was just going to say, that's actually really sad. I bet they're... 150 times more likely. Wow. I'm going to look at my nightstand a little differently now. Right? This is, this one's kind of a little different, but I thought it was crazy. Doctor's sloppy handwriting kills more than 7,000 people a year. Okay, but, so this, my brain's immediately, um, my prescriptions are all electronic now. There's no signatures involved because it's sent through the computer, so maybe those. Like charts in a hospital, probably. Oh, you're, that's like probably what it is. numbers being interpreted differently. Giving them See, the our brains amount. do work. So we, we mesh up so much of the time, but then we just, com I, sometimes we completely <laughs> interpret things differently. And I'm glad because I was like, oh, like <laughs> those 7,000 people are saved. <laughs> Thanks, Gail. I learned about it with my degree. Um, and also, and then we'll get back to the episode. I just wanted to throw in a thing because people hate on sharks. They're scared of them. But I love sharks. It's their fucking ocean. Yeah, man. It's not shark-infested waters. It's human-infested waters. They only kill, on average, 12 people a year. You want to know the average for how many sharks are killed by people? Oh, it's really bad. 11,000 per hour. Yeah. There's, there's like, a black market illegal trade for shark, some specific shark fins, and it makes the species go extinct, and it... It's like a million a year. It's awful. I... Be nice to sharks, guys. Like, if you're that worried, just don't go in the ocean. Yeah, and I, I want to say, too, that um, I'm pretty sure I listened to a shark episode of Ologies, and I want to say that... Um, that might have been where I heard that when sharks attack people, it's usually by accident because they see them and think that they're a seal because, yeah. like, of surfboards and... Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's a shark looking through the fucking water up, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what they're... I don't know what they think it is, yeah. but... They're just doing their thing. Humans probably are not easy prey. Yeah, no. Somebody's gonna correct us. Go ahead. I have yeah, no right? idea what I'm talking about. Let's get back to roller yes. coasters. Sorry. Okay. Take it away. Oh, are you all done? Do you didn't look up the cow one? Oh no, I forgot. I'm do so you think sorry. Do you think Siri would tell us? Probably not. You, usually she just gives me a Wikipedia. Yeah. Page. Let's it's try. Awful. She doesn't answer anything anymore. 
Siri, how many cows kill people every year? Here's what I found. Like, what happened to her? I don't know. Who hurt her? Uh, the Alexa one, like, just, I don't know, Siri got intimidated and it didn't. She just popped me up an article. Crocodiles, malaria, what? Get out of here. That's not what I want. Oh, well, we'll follow it up. Otherwise, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Okay. So, but I do know that cows kill more people every year than sharks. I believe it. I had a really deep appreciation for moo cows when I was little. <laughs> I had a whole book about cows. That fact might just be from there. Okay, so we're going to look at roller coasters today and theme parks across the world that have competed to make the next best, biggest, baddest, most badass theme park yeah. out there. The modern parks are home to some of the craziest, most record-breaking roller coasters in the world. So um, some of these just kind of make me, like, my pulse picks up just a little bit, like, thinking about these records. Like the King Ka coaster in a park in New Jersey, which has a 465-foot ascent into the sky. And in order to get the cars up this 45-story ride, which is at a 90-degree angle, the ride takes passengers on a three-and-a-half-second long ride that's 128 miles an hour. Can you imagine? I... The thing... It really... It, they really, it's, they really erected it. It really is, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it really, yeah. <clears throat> so if it's speed you're after, then look no further than the Formula Rosa roller coaster at Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi, which reaches a speed of 149 miles an hour. Apparently, the experience is like that of driving a race car and gives you the same feeling. That Which sounds pretty dope. Does not sound pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the Nagashima Spa Land in Japan, which holds the record for the longest roller coaster. It used to hold two other records as well, but since it opened, um, they've been beat. So mm. right now, the longest record is the only one that it holds, but it measures in at a whopping one and a half miles long. Oh my God. And I think the average roller coaster today is 90 seconds or less. That's I want to say that's what it is. And this one in Japan, um, it's four minutes. Wow. That's... That's a long time. That's so long. I mean, it's actually really pretty to look at. It looks very, like, old world fair, kind of, with the way that it's built, but four minutes. Yeah. That's a lot. So the history of roller coasters, what we found was that before modern media, it had less to do with who invented what first and more to do about who was better at advertising for their creations. There are instances of multiple patents being filed, somebody claiming to own it, somebody who invented it and built it but didn't file a patent, people stealing technology from each other. It really was about who could tell their story the loudest. Yeah. But Russia, Europe, and Asia are all starting points for where we can see the prototypes of roller coasters being developed. And in the 16th and 17th century, coal mine carts, tracks, and wool slide, 
Wood. Wool. Wool slides. That'd be weird. <laughs> Wood slides were all used first to shuttle the materials and workers, but eventually to carry pedestrian riders. Then slopes were built intentionally into Russian mountains and turned into ice slides, which could reach as high as 70 feet with 50-foot drops. F that noise. You're, there's no seatbelts? No. No. No, uh... Wee! There's nothing. It's like it, it's, to me. It's like uh, reminds me of inner tubing. Oh yeah. So the French saw this. They took notice of the ride and they made two important changes. First, instead of requiring snow, they could wax their slides. And second, wheels were added in the bottom. What was once limited to winter was now enjoyed year round. Did you? I don't know if you heard this or it was still in practice when you went to school, but at Canton there was a tradition that people would steal the lunch trays. They would wear their winter coats in and then leave with the tray zipped up in their jackets and then take them out back behind the dormitory with that really big hill and use them for sledding. No. To the point that, that, like, they would count the trays and everything to make sure people weren't sneaking off with them. That's so funny. Um... Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. So, yeah, they're enjoyed year-round now. In the meantime, people across the world, including the U.S., are still enjoying the bumpy scenic sights taken in from the old-fashioned minecart rides. One dual-purpose railway in Pennsylvania saw more than 30,000 people at the peak of its popularity. Admission was 75 cents a person. Ugh. And the speeds in the mining carts could reach up to, like, 50 miles Again, an no hour. Again, no seatbelts. Yeah, like... Just wild. These mining cart rides were the popular experience until the next big roller coaster development. How? I can't imagine being that bored. Y'all, there's such a, th I, there's such a thing as books. <laughs> Paying 75 cents in the... I wrote this. What year was this? 75 cents to ride a mine cart at 50 miles an hour. Buy a book. Know. Stay home. <laughs> In 1884, we see the creation of the first roller coaster in the U.S. Woo! LaMarcus Thompson was the man of the hour, and he was known as the grandfather of roller coasters. He might not have been the first person to do this stuff, but again, he was the best at shouting it, so he gets yeah. the most credit. That's how it goes. He was the inventor behind the Switchback Railway roller coaster installation at Coney Island. Like the versions before it, it was an instant hit. At five cents a ride, the customers, or sorry, the coasters brought in over $600 a day. In modern money, that's roughly $15,756. That's a lot. Five cents. See, that's a lot better. Yeah. yeah. I would pay that. Within four short years, Thompson went on to build 50 more roller coasters. What started as a way to keep visitors from enjoying the company of a brothel or saloon turned into a pretty successful business venture. That's right. The intention behind the first modern roller coaster built in the States was to distract visitors from the brothels and saloons that were popping up. Too bad it had the opposite effect. Hmm. So now we're going to go on to the resources on the history. Yeah, sorry. My script kind of got mixed up somehow. I'm a page... Behind somehow? Hello. Yes, that's the page I'm looking uh -huh. at. I got this page here. I don't know where it goes. Alright, so 
Yes. So I still can't get over the whole fact that he created the roller coaster to distract people. Right. To do. I just, where, I, mm, logic, I can't see it. I do not see the, I need to do something to distract people from committing sins. Right. Let's take these mine cart rides and yeah. make them go faster. <laughs> but, okay, so it's important to look at uh, the history of Coney Island, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of history to it. There's a lot. I read a lot. A lot of it is really boring. There's, like any major city, it's going to have ups and downs, good mm-hmm. things, bad things. If you're super interested in it, it is a very interesting topic. There's a lot more that you can read about. But we kind of just shrunk it down into, like, what we thought our need to know and fascinating. And we use a lot of money references whenever we can because mm-hmm. I really like knowing how much people were spending and what it's worth today. I don't know why I'm always interested in that. Probably because it's, like, crazy to think about because none of it would really happen today, probably. Yeah, no, no. it's just, it's just, no. People can't just do that anymore. <laughs> no, and you think back, I mean, I what did I just watch? Oh, The Haunting of Hill House. The mm-hmm. first episode, when they leave and they get in the station wagon, the station wagon has the seat in the back that faces out the back. Of oh the station gosh. wagon. Did you catch that? <laughs> no, I didn't. I've ridden, I rode in those when I was a kid, and the idea terrifies me now. I mean, you, you're supposed to yeah. leave your kid rear-facing for, like, five years, and here we were, not even, you know, maybe 20 years ago, sitting in the trunk of a station wagon. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So, a lot of the resources on the history of Coney Island indicate that it starts in the 1600s with the Dutch's colonization of what is now New York City. But no, a land's history does not start when a bunch of white men discover it. We don't intend on talking too much about the history of the island itself. This is the part where there's like 150 years where mostly nothing happens. And we're more interested in the amusement parks that were later built there. But this is where the story rightfully begins. So that's where I'm going to start. So up until the white explorers discovered, air quotes, their native land, indigenous tribes lived across the continent. As the colonies were developed and needed more room to expand, they continued to push the natives, taking over more and more land. Before we get into this fuckery that is early American history, I'd like to point out that the indigenous people did not believe in the practice of owning land. So the concept of buying land or receiving money for land was not something they were familiar with Mm -hmm. or something that they practiced. And so that's why a record from 1626 about a director, Mr. Some Rich White Guy, who allegedly purchased Manhattan Island from the natives, is so offensive because what he paid them amounts to a mere $24. Oh, it, it wasn't even actually $24. It was trinkets. Now, normally we convert old money into today's money so we can more easily convey how much we're talking about, but this time there isn't a clear answer. We know how many guilders the trinkets were worth at the time, but it's the trinkets themselves that caused the conversion issue. Cloth and beads and other items that would have been traded, they don't inflate in price over time like money does. The materials might be different, but I'm willing to bet you you could take $24 to a thrift store 
buy all those same trinkets, cloth, beads, yeah. you know, all those other things, and have change left oh, over. Yeah. Which makes this the most successful land purchase in American history because it costs the least per square inch. Because if you can't figure out the modern cost of what we paid for Manhattan Island, it remains $24. Yeah. Wow. Outdoing the Louisiana purchase. And it just, that's why, that's why I wanted to start here. I, I feel like this is where it has to start because this is something that needs to be talked about more. Okay, so now the land that's inhabited by the indigenous tribes and the Dutch colonists, but they're selling the titles for this land where these people live through a trading company to mostly rich white dudes across the seas. And it included the beaches of, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce <laughs> these, this is what the, in my research showed that the beaches were called Nariok and Manahanan, I, which I probably did not pronounce correctly and I apologize. Um, but it was these beaches that included the land that we're talking about. It was this area Coney that would Island. one day become Coney Island. So there were three islands in total, but they were really marshy. They had a ton of sand dunes, and it was created by three different ocean inlets. And when the tide was low, you could walk in between them. But over time, as the tides brought in more and more sand, it filled in a lot of those gaps. And then over the years, they filled in and got to the point where people could do the rest by hand. They just filled them in themselves, giving the island the beginning of what is considered an iconic shape, if a mm -hmm. if an island can have an iconic shape. And, in fact, there's only one thing that's missing from this transformation. Landfill. Yeah. <laughs> We're missing something gross, right? right? So, early in the 1900s, refuse was used to fill in more of the island's gaps, including small creeks. And it was this final step that finally gave us the footprint of what the island looks like today. Garbage, yeah. That yeah. filled out and added mm. to the coastline. So, at this point, <laughs> rich white foreign investors are applying to the Dutch West India Company for land titles in New Netherland, which is basically what I said last paragraph, but written a whole lot better. But the people who are already living here, the Dutch colonists, are from Gravesend, the New White Settlement, and they've also applied for a land title, but they get, like, land title cock-blocked by the rich white guys. Mm -hmm. um, so they circumvented the Dutch rule, and the colonists went directly to two of the tribes who claimed residence on the islands, the Canarsie tribe and the Nyack tribe, and in 1649 and 1654, the Gravesenders purchased, air quotes, the land from each tribe in exchange for two guns, powder and ball, and wampum beads. Which, the wampum beads are actually really neat and worth a quick interruption. They're small cylindrical beads, but made from shell. They're traditionally made by Native Americans, and they were used for decoration and also sold for money and used in burgers and trades. They're really pretty. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> I started ditching names of people who don't deserve to have their names, you know, read aloud, and it, it gets a little bit more uh, 
colloquial from here on out. Mm-hmm. So when the guy responsible for the land title cock block lost his job, he offered to sell the land title to the colonists. But they didn't think they needed it anymore because they've already traded... I struggle with this. They've acquired the land from the natives who lived there before them, and then they don't think that they need the land title anymore. But instead, it was just sold to another person who wanted to create a salt work on the property, which it's this really complicated process, but what it does ultimately is that it produces salt that could then be used to sell for people using and cooking, but also for preserving meat. It was really important pre, like, icebox. Sorry, I just need a sip of my water. Yeah. Gotta stay hydrated. So it turns out that it isn't just humans that like salt. Um, Cows do too. And there just happened to be a heap of them in the Gravesend area. Now, as it turns out, cows don't have any regard for boundaries, and they licked the shit out of that salt. (laughs) And now the salt work owner is irate. He threatens the farmers and the cows with a shotgun. He almost gets lynched in town, and he has a bunch of his land burned down by angry neighbors. Then, something that never happens when money and land and cultures are at stake, turns out the privileged white guy lied. The quote, excuse me, the quote unquote official ownership of the land now defaults back to the trading company, and eventually the Gravesenders would come into possession of a communal land title. Also, I guess that's a lesson here. If you mess with cows, you might get lynched. (laughs) Cows are badass. Yes. So, renamed by the Dutch because of the resident rabbits. Bun buns. Bun buns. The land became known as, oh god, Meg. Coney Island. It's just spelled. Oh, it's just spelled. It's, okay. Yeah, well, it's because they named it. Ah. The original spelling was like an Americanization okay. of. It looks cool the way it's yeah. spelled. Coney Island or Rabbit Island. As the colonists domesticated the area, it turned into a quiet farming community until the American Revolution. And then it reverted back to its peaceful state after the war ended. The island grew primarily tobacco and corn and had its own built-in fertilizer system through dead marine life washing up on the beaches. Which is gross and also awesome at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Gross, but... I I don't think I would want to... I think it would smell... Yeah, I agree. People from out of town went and they would seek out the Gravesend during the summer for a cool breeze, a soak in the ocean... Or to hunt, buy, or eat clams. Lots of lots of clams. Apparently this is the Coney Island area thing. And then the beginnings of a tourist destination were taking root. People could get to the island by foot, horse, or carriage. But many of the traveling routes were nothing more than dirt and mud, or worse, cobblestone. A local committee pushed for a better way for the tourists to travel in and out. The first railroad was created and aptly named Shell Road because shells were used in the construction of the paving process used at the time. It didn't take long before the first smart business person built a hotel right on that road. The Coney Island House, which was later changed to the Oceanic Hotel, was a three-story hotel that catered to out-of-towners of all kinds. Before the Civil War, it saw famous people such as P.T. Barnum, Miss Jenny Lind, Washington Irving, and Daniel Webster. 
After the end of the Civil War, Coney Island would see the construction of a lot of new hotels and the decline of its OG hotel. Yeah, more affordable, more spacious, new. Mm. So what ended up happening to the hotel wasn't uncommon. It became a summer boarding house for families vacationing, then a hospital, then a rooming house, and eventually a flop house. And rooming houses, in case you're not familiar with them, are buildings with multiple individual rooms that can be rented out while residents share a bathroom and a kitchen facility. And then after the hotel closed for good, the building was destroyed by a fire. It's not the first fire we've mentioned, and it won't be the last. From the end of the Civil War in 1865... So the first decade of the 1900s, Coney Island would go from being nothing more than a mostly undisturbed beach to a flooring seaside destination. And only a few years after that, it would go on to be known as America's Playground. Here's how it happened. The hotels that they built on this cobblestone road were so good at attraction, attracting tourists continued to flourish. They offered services like bathing suit rentals, which we said when I first read this sounds disgusting. Yeah. But, uh, which were called bathing costumes, and it was for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Imagine going to Google and searching for bathing suits. Take what they would show you, and then imagine exactly the opposite of that. Or, like, maybe, like, what your grandma might wear to bed at night. Yes. That's what a bathing costume is. A full shoulder-to-knee garb that sometimes looks like a dress, while other times it looks more like a potato sack. I bet it depends on how expensive they were. Yeah, undoubtedly. So the hotels at this time are flourishing, and vacationers are totaling roughly 25000 to thirty each weekend in 1873. The very next year, the first roller coaster in the country was constructed at Coney Island, called the Switchback Gravity Railway. It resembled the early predecessors much more than it resembled the current kind of roller coaster. To ride, you had to climb a 50-foot platform to sit in a train and then proceed at the whopping speed of six miles an hour down the track. Wee! Sucker. I'll be here when you're done and I'll be here with my book. When riders reached the end, everyone exited the train so it could be put on the opposite track, then refilled with passengers and sent back. The little roller coaster that could... Became an instant hit. I, don't, I do not understand. <laughs> People wanted more of that six mile an hour. They d- this was seen as crazy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Soon, though, an improved version of the roller coaster, this one with a mechanical conveyor for the train, was created. Other experiences were offered to tourists, like the carousel, slides, and toboggan rides. There were also restaurants and cafes, museums, and music halls marching bands, and even famous performances like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Now don't forget, in the 1880s, we saw a workers' movement for Saturday half-holidays, a.k.a. half-days of work. And at this time, it's really important because less work means more time to be spent at Coney Island. Mm -hmm. It would also mean a little less money, but I think at this point in time, people want to spend. Yeah. It's that, that... time of uh, 
Oh, I'm trying to think of a way to to say it that doesn't sound super dorky, but there's a lot of change coming, and yeah. you can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1895, the first amusement park opened at Coney Island. Now, not only is Sea Lion Park the first amusement park on the island, it's also the first park ever that was enclosed and charged an entrance fee to gain access to the rides and activities. Inside, you could see the water shows with sea lions that gave the park its name, or you could dare to do the flip-flap railway, a super early looping roller coaster that was known to render people unconscious. (laughs) Yet again, I will just be over here sitting (laughs) on my bench. There was also music, roving entertainers, and an early weird X Games-style bicycle show. I mean, bicycles had just hit peak popularity in Europe, and so the owner brought a bunch in and created a show of people bicycling around. So, unfortunately, the other new parks that have opened in the meantime were tough competition, and Sea Lion Park closed its doors in 1902. Though no longer operating, the original park would serve as inspiration for the next one to open, Steeplechase. This new park would also sell tickets for entrance, which would gain you access to rides like the one the park was named after, the steeplechase in which visitors rode mechanical horses that were on a metal track. There was also a Canals of Venice replica ride, which sounded really neat. You got to climb in like the gondola yeah, and they would I'm like, do that. that would be really cool. Um, but they also had apparently extensive gardens and they had benches, they encouraged picnicking, um, there was live music, and there was a bathhouse. There's something for everyone. The real, there really was, and I think that was why they succeeded and also why they'd eventually fail. Yeah. So, somehow, we talked about this, this social revolution that's kind of bubbling under the surface. Somehow, the designer behind the park managed to blend innocent family fun with a bit of sensuality without falling victim to the island's overall rumored reputation as an unclean place with liars and cheats and beggars and sex workers. So it doesn't seem sensual to us in 2019, but at this point in time, in the very early 1900s, the rides that were made to tussle people around together was really skating the line between proper. I cannot roll my eyes hard enough. Just (laughs) the idea that just, like, bumping into somebody, like, knees and elbows and stuff like that was not normal and was therefore like slightly salacious is is so weird to me. So it's too bad that you had to walk through one of these at the beginning of the park. It was called the the barrel roll and you walked into the park, walked through this barrel that shook you all around and like got you all sensualized and uh, then spit you out and off you go into the park. I... And then, so there's this one specific area of the walkthrough that I took note of um, that would electrocute the men and it would blow air up women's skirts and there were other people watching it who had already gone through. So it was kind of like the, the the Ripley's Believe It or Not exhibit. Where you, they tell you that you can't lick your own elbow. Right. And then you get through, and then on the other side you get to watch a bunch of idiots yeah. trying to lick their elbow. It's like this. That's what they were doing. But this was also considered sensual. Mm. Electricity. Yeah. Zap! <laughs> <laughs> 
So an accidental fire that started inside the park went on to take it, take with it much of the park. Multiple hotels and businesses were lost. Reports at the time claimed upwards of a million dollars in losses. However, Steeplechase would be rebuilt, improved, and reopened. The new focus of the park was the Pavilion of Fun, an enclosed amusement park. This attraction is responsible for the park being successful and open for as long as it was. The park and pavilion would close its doors for good in 1964. That's so long for yeah. to stay for that one enclosed. I mean, it's a genius idea, but that's crazy that it allowed it to stay open that long. Yeah. The next park created at Coney Island was Luna Park. So now we're in we're back in 1903. Out of all of the parks, Luna Park was the most fantasy-like. It enticed people with bright lights and illusions. It was also said to have cost $1.5 million. The new park had a nickname from the get-go, dubbed the Electric Eden because of the amazing light setup. Some 250,000 lights greeted boats in the New York Harbor. Yeah, so it wasn't the Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island or anything else that people were seeing at the time that these parks were running. Those lights were the Mm -hmm. first thing people saw, which I think is just really, I love Stuff like that. I bet it was gorgeous. Yeah, I agree. Wish I could see it. Rides in the park included a ride to the moon and a trip to the ocean, which was inspired by 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And Jules Verne. Both of them were realistic, interactive, and they had the best technology of the day. They also held grand reenactments of natural disasters, like Pompeii, and offered exposure to other cultures through... Reproduced towns from countries like Ireland and Egypt. They did do towns of other cultures that probably crossed the line into cultural appropriation. Yeah. The park would be repossessed by creditors in 1912 and experienced a failed attempt at creating a new park called Toyland. Then it, too, was a victim of a fire and the park burned. Lots of fire. Or I, I just you say Toyland and I think we have Legoland now, which is right, kind yeah. of like Toyland, and there's one going into New York. That's true. That's exciting. That's really exciting. Only one year later, and Dreamland, the last of the big parks, opened its doors. Millions of dollars were poured into the creation of an amusement park that was supposed to not only replace Luna Park but outdo it every way possible, and that's what Dreamland did, at least for a while. The park was rumored to have cost three and a half million dollars to build. Modern money conversion makes that total cost ninety nine million eight hundred and seventy two thousand and thirty six dollars. And while we're talking numbers, park entrance cost fifteen cents on the weekend or a mere dime during the weekdays. There was a separate charge for rides and attractions that varied from ten cents to twenty five cents. Only $4.28 in today's money would be needed to gain entrance, and you'd need about $6 on average per ride to participate, which I want to say that sucks, but the entrance fee is so low if you were to think about how much it costs to get into, like, Darien, excuse me, Darien Lake right now. That's for sure. So, a sampling of the attractions that they had included a famous animal show, which was home to over 30 different kinds, or 30 different animals, which at one point or another included polar bears, Don't understand that. elephants, tigers, hyenas, and snakes. Danger noodles. <laughs> there was a tea pavilion, 
infant incubators and a ride called the Hellgate boat ride, which just a roller coaster. And it's the roller coasters created to keep people from falling prey to the chance to sin and we got rides called Hellgate. There's just I can't make this irony up. Okay, so Hellgate's done and then there's the Fighting the Flames exhibition which is the most well known. It was the biggest exhibit attraction that they did Um, and it was the most morbidly or uh, darkly ironic part of the episode because the exhibit showcased the life of a fireman so they would conduct controlled burns they would rescue people from the top of you know the second floor story and they would save the people jumping out you know typical fireman stuff but then shortly after being sold at a bankruptcy auction the park caught fire (laughs) In 1911, and despite having, I don't know how many people were there that day, but the group of workers for the Fighting the Flames totaled over 2,000 workers, and there was also a fire station built into a very insensitive part of the park known as Midget City. Oh my gosh. It's just horrible. That, they helped, but it just... It wasn't enough, um, and so the the park couldn't be saved. All these fires, then. It, it's... I know they're common, but still, it seems eerily. Yeah. At this time, we see a new subway system that allows people to get to Coney Island for just five cents in the 1920s. But by this point in time, the popularity and success of Amira's playground, it's headed downhill. People can get there for cheap, but with all the fo- fires destroying parks and no one investing money to revamp them. Most of the draw for the visitors is at the beaches. The true peak of Coney Island as America's playground seems to span about 1895 to 1910, which seems like such a short span of time for such a robust reputation. Yeah. And despite the various fires, bankruptcies, and rebuilds, the amusement parks of Coney Island at one point or another were right up there with big park names, like the mouse. Mm Mm-hmm. However... Coney Island did retain just enough its popularity to not fall into obscurity. Now in the 1920s again, the island is known as a popular beach resort destination. Tens of thousands of visitors still flock to the Nickel Empire, complements of a new subway system in New York City that allowed the people to get to the island for five cents. For sure, this is one of the aspects that kept the island up and running despite the Great Depression. In fact, this destination remained popular right up until the beginning of World War II, which allowed one peculiar physician and his parade of preemies to prosper. Do you like my little alliteration? I was so excited about that. So we're going to introduce Dr. Martin Cooney, who may or may not have been an actual doctor. The, (laughs) The verdict seems to be out. His credentials don't work out, but I think that's kind of beyond the point, and I'll explain why. Today, he's considered the pioneer of neonatology in the United States, and it all started with a bunch of baby chickens. Real one. Oh, well, I wrote baby chicks. No, I wrote chicks, and then I made a joke, and I ruined it by saying baby. So there were. There were real baby chicks at a Parisian zoo where a visiting French obstetrician noted the baby chicken incubator, and he adapted it to be used with human babies. 
Now, it's not um, too different from what they used at the, at the time, which was like the hot water bottle kind of things to give the preemies warmth, mm -hmm. but it was the actual act of going out of your way to create something and recognize the care that these preemies needed and start providing it because doctors just were not convinced that premature babies were going to survive. Mm -hmm. And so this whole process went on to not only change this part of history but change the minds of doctors for generations and I'm talking a little slow because it's a topic that hits close to home and I'm just when I read the research and I wrote the article and we've been talking about it it's just it's kind of amazing to me and um, I think most people probably wouldn't recognize the importance and I just kind of get a little excited knowing that all 15 people who listen to this are going <laughs> to are going to know a little bit more about about this topic. So anyway, the next important guy in our story is Pierre Boudin, another French physician who saw the potential for the device and really championed the topic. But he struggled with funding, which would not only allow for him to do more research, but making more incubators meant being able to talk more about them and show them off and hospitals would be able to learn about them and then hopefully purchase them and use them. So he sends his apprentice which is Martin Cooney, to the Berlin World's Fair to exhibit at the Great Industrial Exposition, and it was a smashing success. If we use the World's Fair as a guide, we know that the public paid 25 cents to see the incubator babies exhibit. Exhibit. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. At the time, it cost $15 to care for each baby per day, or $405 today's money. The income from the exhibit covered the operating costs and then some. So not only did the exhibits do well, they were invited to be displayed for Queen Victoria's Jubilee the following year. After the royal debut, incubator shows continued to gain in popularity. Cooney is relocated at this point in time to the United States, and this is where he changes his name and creates Cooney as his new last name to be more American. Mm -hmm. And so now that he's relocated, he takes his show on the road, or he tries to. After a hiatus of not being very successful with the baby hatchery business, he began the legwork needed to fill the incubators and save the preemies lives. Now, incubators are still too expensive to be common, so babies born to hospitals around the New York City New York City area were handed over to the doctor and his company. Incoming babies would be given a bath, they would be clothed, and started a feeding schedule for every two hours. In between these feedings, visitors could see the babies in the incubators, and the money that was raised for entrance went directly to help cover the cost of their care. And at this time, many doctors still viewed the premature babies as not worth the effort in saving because they require so much round-the-clock care, exactly how much depended on the baby. Some of the patients required weeks of care while others needed months. When a child graduated from the incubators, they were released to their family and the family was never charged. The combination of medical care, feeding schedules, funding, and incubators gave the doctors, preemies, an 85% chance of survival. For years, these exhibits were the only hope that parents had. It's crazy to think about. And Cooney's own daughter was born prematurely and spent time at his exhibit in one of the incubators. Which, like you were saying, like, who cares if he was a physician? Yeah. He did this incredible thing. Yeah. And he got to save all these little babies. 
Mm-hmm. Little babies that mostly went on to grow up, and they did interviews mm-hmm. and reunions. One of the years at the World Fair, they sent out an invitation to the previous year's graduates of the exhibit and asked them to come back. Wow. And they did, and there was there was a whole bunch. There was, like, around 50 of them that all, like, did a reunion to show, you know, how much that year had changed them. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the 1940s that hospitals afforded multiple incubators. Once this changed, it was time for the sideshow medical exhibit to close. The same year that the doctor closed his show, Cornell Hospital created the first premature infant station in the country. Yo, New York. Yeah. According to his own estimates, the doctor estimated that he saved the lives of roughly 6,500 little babies. The rest of his life seems pretty mundane and typical. He died without being recognized for his contributions to neonatology, and despite his success, successes, is often remembered as or lumped in together with quack doctors. Because of the sideshow yeah. aspect, unfortunately. Which might be our last ironic twist for the episode, seeing as how the incubator doctor had a long-time 25-year friendship with the head of the American Medical Association. The same man who was the head of the quack doctor witch hunt. Yeah, which I think speaks in and of itself. He might not have started out a doctor, but we're also talking about a time in which obtaining a doctor's degree, you probably didn't actually have to have the knowledge. We've talked about Mm -hmm. how easy it was. Um, So I mentioned earlier that the idea of... um, (laughs) <laughs> they before I get into the story, they called the exhibit. Uh, a reporter ref- referred to it as a uh, pay-per-view NICU, <laughs> and I thought that was really adorable, and That's I just cool. wanted to pass that on. But yeah, so like I was saying before, I mentioned that um, NICU and premature babies are a story that hits close to home. I read that one in ten babies is born prematurely. Now, there's a time frame in which a baby being born prematurely can still go home because they're considered you know, healthy enough and full term mm-hmm. enough. And then there's the time frame in which a baby is born and they're going to need to spend time in the hospital, obviously. Um, and uh, my twins, who were born at 33 weeks, which is seven weeks early, for anybody who's not familiar with gestation, um, spent two weeks in a NICU and one week at a hospital nursery before coming home. Now, luckily enough, they were just feeders and growers, which meant that they were quickly breathing room oxygen and were really only there to be watched to make sure that they were gaining weight uh, staying hydrated and um, not having episodes of the bradycardia, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. We had to stay the night with them um, and go through the motions of having the baby at home before we were allowed to bring them home, which I actually thought was kind of sweet. There was like a little suite built into the nursery where you could stay the night before you got to bring them home. And that was exciting. It was exactly three weeks after they bo- they were born that they came home. But there is a lot of uh, struggle with the experience. You know, the preterm labor, terrifying hospital rides, emergency C-section, you know, a hospital stay. There's, um, there's not as much openness with experiences like this as there needs to be for our society to be able to come together 
and talk about these things that happen to everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not supposed to talk about them for some reason because somebody, you know, somebody said not to. Some somebody yeah. that we can't name, you know. But um yeah, one in ten babies is born prematurely and with how um how many multiples there are multiple pregnancies, a uh, pregnancy where you ha- are having multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we use the lingo. Um, it's even more common because you're carrying multiple two, three, four babies at once. Oh, four babies at once. Oh, <laughs> I, so yeah, I won't, um, actually I will a couple more seconds. Um, uh, postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety are something that are really common that happens to so many moms after having their babies. And it's not something we're encouraged to talk about. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to spring back into our pre-baby bodies and pre-baby mindset and pre-baby mentality. And, um, but it's real. It's real. I mean, just like any major change or stressor in your life it's gonna disrupt everything and it changes everything and it's natural a freaking human came out of your vagina yeah obviously some shit's gonna happen yeah i mean you have hormone level changes you have your body getting back to a regular a new regular state Mm -hmm. of being afterwards you're responsible for this mini human who may or may not sleep through the night, may or may not have colic. You know, it's mm. babies can be wonderful. They can be cute and they can sleep. And then they can also not sleep and scream for days and get lots of teeth. And it's stressful. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that. And uh, it's really important for everyone to have a good relationship with their primary care physician. Mm-hmm. Um I do have one, so I can tell you to do it. I have a great primary care physician that took a while to find, but it's really important that we stand up for ourselves and be vocal about this. So, that's my story. Well said. I think I kind of skipped over all the normal information you share in a birth story, like what time and how much they weighed. Just kind of got down to the bare bones. I mean, I'm sure I'll talk about them more. They were both healthy, though. They are healthy now. We're very lucky. Um, They are awesome kids. Yeah. And uh, the hotel, the hotel, the hospital that we mentioned earlier, Cornell, isn't that far from where we live Mm -hmm. in Western New York, which is it's always fun learning yeah. history about places that are really close to you. And then there's also a really well-known hospital near us that specializes in a very high level of NICU neonatal services. Um, so there were a lot of babies there when my boys were there. Mm-hmm. A lot of different, um, for a lot of different reasons. So it's definitely, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely something that happens. So... Um, anyway, thank you for tuning in. And if you want more potties in your life, join us back here next Friday for the next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on social media. We have a Patreon group that we would love for you to join as well. For as little as a dollar per month, you get access to the potatorium, which is like a little fan club. Yeah. Show. You get weekly episode posts, special content like extra audio clips, and giveaways occasionally. We're definitely going to do a giveaway for the 13th episode on the 13th. Definitely. 
So we're on Instagram at an ode to the odd. Twitter at podities underscore. And uh, you can find us on Facebook at podities also. Mm -hmm. If you look for podities and you find a cell phone supply company, it's not us, obviously. Uh, That's why we have different social media handles. We couldn't really get the ones that we wanted to. However, we have this awesome custom domain and email. So if you want to share a story or request a topic, you can feel free to shoot us an email at podities at anodetotheodd.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider referring the show to a friend or writing it on iTunes. Podities is written and researched by Meg McGibbon and Callie Ayers. And until next time, seek out the strange and learn something new. Isn't that enough time? Do you think they're gone? Dramatic pause. We need a drum roll. No, Marvel doesn't use a drum roll. Fuck. We don't need a drum roll. No. Okay, so we decided we're doing a new thing. We each came up with a title for the episode. Because we like to have fun at titles. If you can't tell, they're really geeky, nerdy uh, names. Mm. So we each have um, an idea for the title. Are we going to swap or are we going to read our own out loud? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you think's better? Attention. We'll swap, I guess. Okay. Alright, I'll go first. Okay. So, Kale's suggestion, death by coconuts? Are you suggesting that coconuts migrate? Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I'm, I'm not so sure mine can it. Oh, I'm not sure mine can hold up to a Monty Python quote. Uh-oh. The first thing I thought of was coconuts and then Monty Python. And then I had to think about how to connect. Oh my it. gosh. Oh, that's so good. Oh, okay. And Meg's is nobody puts baby in the Coney Island incubators. <laughs> but really they did. <laughs> I love the parentheses. Well, I was like, nobody puts baby in a Coney Island, but I really want to use this title. How do I write on here that they really did? We're not, I don't want to be misleading. (laughs) Oh, man. Damn it. If anybody else thinks of a good episode title for this episode, feel free to drop it on Instagram or something and let us know. I would love to hear it. If you can make me laugh hard enough with something that manages to be better than what we came up with, I will send you something in the mail. Yeah. And next week, we're going to start giving you topics at the end, just if you hang in there with us. And so next week, the topic that Kale picked is that we're going to take a look into some spooky, eerie... Disappearance stories mm-hmm. that have to do with oh, paranormal, nautical theme going on. A little we've, different, but yeah, still We've got the Graveyard of the Atlantic, the Great Lakes version of the Bermuda Triangle, and then an Alaskan Triangle where more than 20,000 people have disappeared. So I've never heard of it. I had never either. So we're actually kind of straying a little bit from our usual. We want to mix it up mm-hmm. a little bit and uh, do something that doesn't have medicine or arsenic or poison <laughs> or uh, poop. Poop, yeah. Enemas. Mm. Oh, it will be. We need a sign. We have gone this many episodes without referencing enemas. It'll be like our <laughs> Velociraptor injured at work. Someday we're gonna have to cross it out. Right zero. <laughs> 
I'll make sure to start sneaking some uh, references in there. You're welcome, listeners. You're <laughs> so welcome if you, for the animals. If you, <laughs> if you have a suggestion for a name for next week's episode, if you are that fucking clever that you can take those creepy Bermuda Triangle references and come up with a good name, mm-hmm. I'll send you something in the mail. Yeah. Yeah. Punny. Wordplay. Mm-hmm. References. References. Yeah. So we really like the harmless humor, I think I'd probably call it. Yeah. At definitely. the expense of no one. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, we never picked a winner. Well, we have until the morning when I edit this and add in the music. So I think I will give us some time and you'll just have to, well, by this point, I was going to say you just have to find out, but by, by now, this yeah. point, you're going to know by now. You're going to know why it's named the, you would, like, oh, connection. Like, yeah. Like, say the name of a movie in the movie. So, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Roadhouse. Roadhouse? Quote Family Guy. Never mind. Oh, I thought of Rolls and Butter. No, well, See? It's the Roadhouse! Movie. Yeah, the movie. It's also a restaurant, and they I have know. delicious rolls. And peanuts all over the floor. Yeah, I, yeah, you used to be able to do that, and then too many people slipped on them. Yep. Oh, we're still recording. Yeah, okay, here we go so, again. Okay. All right. We will see you next week. Oh, <laughs> my